Take your Bible, all of you, and turn to Romans 5. Romans 5. That is our study. It's our residence for these few weeks. We return there now. Romans 5. We opened this up, if you remember, a few weeks ago, and this chapter is so rich and deep. We need to take our time, precious care, as we work through these gems in God's Word, and no less today. Well, Romans 5, we're going to be looking, starting in verse 12, and in this passage, we are going to see the reality that we are all humans. That's what we're going to see in this passage. But we're going to see this as we look at this passage before us. We may be all humans but we do not all share the same humanity. In fact, there are two and only two kinds of humanity. That's it. The humanity of death and the humanity of life. That's it. Stated another way, they are referred to as the way of death and the way of life. That can be a very helpful way to look at it because those terms ultimately point to where those two humanities lead, the terminus of those two humanities, death for one, life for the other. Yes, all human beings exist here and now, walking through this earthly realm. However, there is not only the manner in which we walk through the here and now. By the way, we will look at that in chapter 6. That's what Paul will take us to, the walking through what that looks like here now. But there's also, firstly, the matter of where the path we're on leads and where it ends. After this earthly sojourn, then, after our final breath, here is the question. Do we then live or do we then die after our final breath? That's the question. That's humanity's question. Meaning, after this temporary existence comes to a close, where do we then spend the rest of eternity? That's the question. And humanity defines this for us. Our humanity determines the answer to that question. Our humanity defines our cosmic position. Do we die eternally, separated from God, spending forever as we deserve to be? Or do we live eternally, forever in God's presence, not as we deserve to be? Friends, your current humanity determines the answer to that question. And I trust you see why it's vital to know and understand which humanity that you're in. As such, you should ask, how do I know which humanity I am in? How do I know which humanity defines me? How do I know which humanity group I'm a part of? That's a pressing key question. The answer is this. Who is your head? Who is your representative? Who stands for you? On that day, who is your head? Who is your representative? Yes, the humanity of every human being is defined by one of two heads. Is it the first human, Adam, the head of humanity originally, defined by rebellion against God? Is he your head? And you'll know that he's your head because you follow him similarly in rebellion. It means this, God's commands are not your joy. 
But God's commands are your question, your doubt, your attack. Or is your head the living head, as we just sang? The better Adam, Jesus Christ in his humanity defined by submission to God. And you know he's your head because you follow him similarly in obedience to God. It means you do not lean on your own understanding, but you trust God and you live life for him as your head. So two humanities, death and life. Today, you are a part of one and only one of those. There are no other. Death and life. Now, understanding these two humanities is certainly of paramount importance for us personally and our present living and future eternal destiny indeed. But it's also, Westmount, fundamentally important for our understanding of this letter. Romans, the gospel of God, as we've been studying, what it is, why it is needed, how it is delivered, and so on, you see of key, key importance. Before us this morning is indeed the basis and the ground for all that we're learning. We're going to see that unpacked in this passage. The gospel of God centers here because, because our default is one of these humanities. We've been studying that in this letter. And contrary to many today, it's not the humanity of life. It's not, as most would say, that we're doing okay or that we will be okay. This letter has taught us quite the opposite. We've studied that in chapters 1, 2, and 3 especially. Naturally, we're members of the humanity of death. We come into this world as card-carrying members of death's humanity. That is our default people group. That is our frightening position, but it doesn't have to be our final position. And that prospect is good news that we can receive a new humanity. A new humanity, here it is, under a new head that's not characterized by sin and death. Thanks be to God that we can receive membership into the humanity of life. With a new head, a living head, God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and live an abundant life. That reality displayed in the gospel of God is what we will see in the verses ahead. Let's then read them in full. Let's read this whole section. We're not going to get to all of it today, of course, the opening verses, but let's at least read it in full. Start in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come, who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, would you take these words and open our eyes to see them. Help us, Lord, to understand and let them sink into our soul. And Father, by your grace and mercy, may they come out by way of our hands and feet and the truth that's lived out of our new humanity in Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So death and life. Look at those verses. Death and life. This entire passage weaves that contrast through Adam and Christ. That's what this whole passage does. Let's begin then, as the verses lead us, with Adam and the humanity of death. And our first point is this, death's arrival. Death's arrival. Look at verse 12 again. Let's read it again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. This verse, I think you can see that, is simply bursting with truth, is it not? There's so much here. It's even cut off. Paul has to cut that off, which we'll come back to in a moment. Thus, because it's so filled with truth, again, as I mentioned, we just need to take our time to make sure we understand what is being said here. And as is the custom with the Apostle Paul, this happens in many of his letters. We've seen it in Ephesians, and of course, we're seeing it here in Romans. Paul often introduces a thought. He's got this theological thought, this big God thought, but then he cuts it off because something else Right? It's been brought to him. He pauses to explain something else and then follow that trail. And so often he'll come back to it, but often not for a while. He's here, he cuts it off at the end of verse 12. And you're left thinking in verse 13, as he finished that thought. Hence, the translators, look down at your Bible, recognize that cutoff. And you have a long dash there, signifying a hanging thought. But Paul's thought, and here's the idea, is a contrast. That's what Paul is doing here in 12 to 21. It's a contrast. And that's clear, I trust, with any reading of this passage. He's contrasting death and life. He's contrasting the trespass and the free gift, verse 15. He's contrasting the reign of death and the reign of life, verse 17. He's contrasting condemnation and justification, verse 18. Disobedience and obedience, verse 19. Sin and grace, verse 20. Death and Adam, life through Christ, verse 21. And I pray you see that. Contrast is this passage. So even when Paul pauses for another thought at the end of verse 12, if we read the passage first in full, we already are tracking with what Paul is doing in verse 12. In fact, we could sum it up and sum up the thought behind this verse this way. If we were to paraphrase what verse 12 is going to say in the passage, we would say this. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, so too grace came into the world through one man and life through grace. And so life spread to all because through that one man, Jesus Christ, all are righteous. That's the thrust of the passage. That's what we're seeing here. A contrast of two men, two heads. And that's it. 
This is the main idea here, and it will be communicated, as Paul does so often, by, a way, by way of a variety of synonyms and terms to ensure we understand. But the idea remains the same. Death is contrasted to life. And to begin in this verse, Paul teaches on death's arrival. That's where he begins. Paul says, look at 12, sin came into the world through one man. That's entry. Sin came into the world through one man. Just stop there. Look at it. The first thing we need to recognize is that there is no Jew or Gentile talk here. Do you see that? No. The Bible says one man, and here he's not referring to Abraham anymore. He he has done that, but here it's not Abraham. He's further back to the very beginning. The apostle's purpose here is much broader now. In fact, the canvas is all humanity. Paul goes right back to the very beginning of humanity, to the one man, to the first man, Adam, whose very name means man and human. That's what Adam means, the first created human. That's important. I want you to hang on to that thought as we think this through. Adam was the very first human. There was none before him. Do you see that? He's the first, none before him. He stood before and above all. And as the very first human, he's introducing something into the world, Paul says. And it's for all. And what is that? Look at it. It's sin. Sin came into the world, the text says, through one man. That's sin's instrument coming into the world, through Adam. So why is there sin in the world? Answer, because Adam brought it in. The account of sin's entrance is what Dave read for us earlier in Genesis 3, a very, very familiar account in the opening chapters of Scripture. And as you listen to that account, and you're seeing this now and reading it now, and if you're actively engaged, you might stop and say, well, wait a minute, I thought Eve sinned, right? Didn't sin come into the world through her? That's a good observation. Well, yes, she did sin, but no, the Bible says sin entered through the one man. So what's going on here? Westmont, recall also in the account in Genesis 3, do you remember who God held to account? Who did he go to? Genesis 3, verse 9, after the sin, it says, but the Lord God called to who? The man, to Adam. Now, this does not mean, by the way, Eve is off the hook for sinning. She got away with that one. Verse 13 of Genesis 3 makes clear she is going to be indicted for what she's done. However, this account and God going to Adam first and foremost reveals something about accountability in humanity. Adam is on the hook first. This is the key. Do you see that? He is on the hook. Theologians refer to this as headship. Adam is head. And it is a principle not just practically of leading. Headship's not practically of leading, but it's also principally of representing. We can call this representation. That's the theology here, representation. And we know the thoughts of representation, the concept of it in many other ways. If you're a sports fan, you know the coach represents the players. If you're a businessman, you recognize that the CEO represents the employees. You know that. That's representation. And in, if we could go further, we would say when things go bad with the team and the players, who loses their job? 
the coach, when things go bad with the company, and maybe it is a whole bunch of things with employees going on, who loses their job? The CEO. Because the coach and the CEO are representative heads of those groups. And again, that's not to say, and we know this, players and employees don't face consequences. They do. But there's a consequence, first and foremost, to being the head of those groups. What it means then, let's be clear now to get back to this text, is that there is a greater accountability, let's say a corporate collective accounting that we recognize. The principle is also the framework for marriage, as we learn in Ephesians 5, a principle that's rooted, this headship principle is rooted in the relationship of Christ in the church, Christ in his body. The text says this in Ephesians 5, the husband is head of his wife, just as, analogous to, Christ is the head of the church. You see that? Headship. Now, of course, this passage in Romans 5 will have much to say of Christ's headship. So much more to say about that in the weeks ahead. But for the purpose of these opening verses, we just need to see this principle, beloved. Headship, representation, a standing, here it is, of one for all. One for all. That's the concept in view here. Through the one man's headship, through Adam's original standing for humanity, that is how sin came into the world. Do you see that? Adam's representation standing for the world, under him, his rule, his reign, it arrived. Now, Adam is not just responsible for sin entering the world, but look at verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, yes, but look what else, and what? Death through sin. That sin, through Adam, brought with it death. We can't miss this here. Sadly, but understandably, in humanity's fallen state, sin doesn't often turn heads, does it? We just have lived with a dealing and a tolerance of sin. Yeah, there is sin, the unbeliever says, but just try to avoid it best you can. I was talking to a Muslim recently, and He's trying to get to know where he's coming from with his spirituality. And one of the things he said, he recognized, yeah, that there's a lot of sin. There's a lot of bad things. But I just try to be good and add good to it. In the end, I just need to be good and add good. And do you see what's going on there? Well, that's fine and good in some economy. But what about the sin? And what about what the sin leads to? Something needs to deal with that. In one sense, if that was it, I might say to my Muslim friend, just the reality of sin and nothing else, you'd say, just duck and get out of the way of sin, right? Just try to avoid it. I mean, just stay out of trouble. Live the best you can. I agree with you, and you should be fine. If you can dodge enough sin and not acknowledge it, I've said, you'll, you'll be fine. But, but here's the problem. Sin is not benign, is it? Sin is not. It's not just sitting there on its own as if you'll just, I won't look at it, I won't touch it, it'll do nothing to me. No. Sin has tentacles. Sin has reach. Sin is not just an unpleasant reality. And what does the text say in verse 12? Look at the text. It says, sin leads to death. And that's not something you fix by avoiding. It's unavoidable. Later in chapter 6, verse 23, we will see that the wages of sin is death. Now, that's the one-to-one. Sin leads to death every time. This This leads to that, again, every time. As such, there's no detached sin, no benign sin. 
Think about Achan in Joshua 7. If his sin was detached from those around him. Sin always has an effect on those around. And not just horizontally, corporately. Here the text says, in death. As such, it was not just sin that arrived in the world with Adam, but death through sin. Think about all the things you hear about with all the different stomach viruses going around and contamination of food. I was thinking about this. If someone brought, or you with your groceries, brought contaminated food into your house, it would never just be a matter of, well, that just tastes funny. Let's get on with our day. What would happen? You get sick, right? But we operate as if we'll never get sick. We can eat as much contaminated food as we want and we'll never get sick. But here's the problem. There's a one-to-one. You eat contaminated food and it leads to sickness. In the same way, sin every time leads to death. Do you see that? There's no teasing apart sin and death. You don't just dodge sin and, and tolerate sin. and be No, sin leads to death every time. They go hand in hand every time. Beloved, this is why sin is so serious. Sin is inseparable to death. Don't just ask Achan, ask Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5. And what of is this death? Is this a physical death then? You would say, yeah, sure, we're all dying. Is this why we eventually die here? Well, yes, it is that. After sin came into the world through the one man, there was indeed death through sin, just as God said. Listen to Genesis 2. This is a further back from what Dave read. This is in the the chapter before. This is a command from God. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat. By the way, that's permissive. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Go for it. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this one you shall not eat. And here is the, the, not just the caution. Here's the warning and the command. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We'll come back to that expression in a moment. That, of course, is not just a physical death, but a spiritual one as well. And we know that because after Adam and Eve sinned, they continued physical existence, didn't they? However, physical death, here it is, is a result of spiritual death. As the genealogies would go on to say, Adam would die a physical death. However, the spiritual death flows, or I should say the physical death flows from the spiritual death. The reason Adam's body will die is because now he's spiritually dead. In fact, if we go back to Genesis 2.17 and we are to render this and pull it all apart in the original We would say this, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely enter the process of beginning to die. That's what it would say. You can imagine how amplified our translations would be if we got every nuance out of the original language sometime. You will begin. That process is in motion. Adam, be sure of it. Your physical vessel will die because now your soul is dead. The reason that our body dies is because our soul has died in Adam. That's the logical connection. That's death's arrival, both physical and spiritual. Sin and death through and in Adam. Now, there's one last implication of death's arrival through Adam here. It's not only the most significant for us today, but it's the most misunderstood. And it comes at the end of the verse. Look at it. It's a truth found. The end of verse 12, it says, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, if you were just to read that, it might appear, 
and you were thinking practically and experientially, you would just look at that, and it appears that the verse is simply teaching that we are practical sinners. You would say, yes, we all sin. In other words, death spreads through our practice of sin because we sin. That's what we might think if we read quickly. And it is true that we are sinners by practice. That's absolutely true. It's uncontested. We are sinners by practice. But here's the question when you read Scripture. Is that truth being taught in this verse? Right? Now, often we can be guilty of this in other ways. We want to take something that's taught elsewhere and import it here. Well, first of all, let's consider the context. If you were to pull back in Romans 5, what we've learned, what we've read, think with me. The context is not about us and what we have done, is it? It's not about what we're doing every day, nor is it about what we will do. Whether it's sin or not, it's not about what we're doing. Who are the two individuals in view in this passage? Adam and Christ. That's it. It's about the practice of those two men, not our practice, the practice of Adam and the practice of Christ. That's one context. Second, this passage is presenting not just two men, but here it is the contrast of these two men who are what? Heads. Say corporate heads, federal heads. They're the heads as representatives. Remember, one standing for all, Adam for all, Christ for all. So here, let's think, death spread to all men, not because all men sinned in practice, that would betray the context. Death spread to all men, not because all men sinned in practice, but death spread to all men men because all sinned in Adam. All sinned in Adam. Now that does not mean we actually committed the sin with Adam. That's not what it's saying. If that were true, God would hold us to account for eating of that tree But the Bible never teaches that, that we have to answer for that tree violation. It never teaches that. It does mean, however, that we were present with Adam in that garden. How? You say, how? I think this is logical if we just stop and think about it. Adam is the first of humanity, is he not? So we existed then, very literally and in one sense, in his DNA. We were all, all of you in this room were in Adam at the very beginning right? We were all in Adam, the lie, the first of humanity. All of humanity flowed from Adam. We were all in him. All of us literally in Adam. We were there in that garden, yes, in Adam as Adam stood as our representative. As such, when sin entered through Adam and death through Adam's sin, the effects were not just on Adam, but all humanity that was in Adam and all humanity that Adam stood for. Again, as the first man and as mankind's representative, his actions had corporate consequences because all humanity was in him. The sin of the first then was counted to all because all were in Adam. Hence, look at the end of verse 12 now, and I pray this is making some sense. All sinned means that all sinned in Adam. We were in him. Death spread to all mankind without exception because all sinned in Adam. Adam's sin was their sin, was our sin. And Adam is the representative head of humanity. Say it another way for more precision. Adam sinned not only as a man, but as mankind. Thus, as far as guilt is concerned, every human being was present in the garden with Adam and as such shares in the act and guilt of that original sin. 
And this is the point we see later. Look at verse 18. This is the point Paul is going to get to later. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, there's the guilt, for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. You see that? Paul will confirm that's what was going on in that act. Guilt. This is inherited guilt. Now, of course, when you hear that term, we have to pause because some of you are saying, well, that sounds very familiar to language I hear today. I I hear about inherited guilt and how we should be feeling guilty for stuff generations past. Oh, this is where we need to pause and put on the mind of Christ and think rightly. What's the difference? I pray it's just obvious. Number one, Adam was a federal head. He was the first of humanity. That's very different to those downstream in their sin. Ezekiel 18 talks about that in other texts. So that's number one. This is about a representative head, as we'll see with a command given to him. Very different to what you see today with land claims and so on. Secondly, here's the thing, and this is what we need to acknowledge. We don't say when we refute woke theologies, we don't say, oh yeah, that means nothing. Yeah, there was wrong done. But here's what we also recognize. We are powerless to fix it. We aren't the heads. We're powerless to fix this. Now, in one sense, we can wax eloquent about political ideologies and so on, but that's not for today. The point is this. In Adam, as a head, we are powerless to fix what happened in Adam. We face the consequences of it, we acknowledge it, but we can't do anything about it. And that is why we rejoice in the head that came, right? The one that fixed it and could and had the power to make it right. Much more we could say about that. But let's not confuse inherited guilt in Romans 5 with much of what you're hearing today. Listen, Only a corporate head can fix these representative problems. That's the key in Romans 5. Only a corporate head. That's why they get a new CEO, don't they? That's why they get a new coach, a new philosophy, a new rhythm, and so on. More on that next week. Now, one other important piece we need to note here is this. Representation is not the only way sin spread to all men. Again, we commented on there's truths that the verse seems to be speaking of, but that's not necessarily Paul's point. We see elsewhere in Scripture, look at this in a moment, this truth that is implied here, representation is not the only way that sin spread to all men. How else? It's the main way, and it's the point of this passage, and the way that Paul will go on to explain in verse 13 and 14. But we do need to acknowledge in Adam's original sin There were other results that flowed from that original sin. Sin transformed Adam's inner nature. Hence, we're in his DNA. His inner nature is transformed, body and soul, and we were too. Passed on genetically, if you will. Like a genetic mutation, Adam passed on to all of humanity flowing from him. And he passed on corruption in body and soul. So we are now sinners by nature who naturally, sinners by nature will naturally be sinners in practice, which our subsequent actions demonstrate. That's why David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's not talking about being birthed in wedlock. He's talking about the DNA in the conception was corruption because he's a human being. From Adam. David also says in Psalm 58 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. See that? They go astray from birth, speaking lies. 
Jesus later would touch on this and teach this same truth in John 3, 3. Look at how it's just implied here, and it's an obvious foundational truth. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, so you can't have a natural birth, you need to be born again, unless you're that way, you can't see the kingdom of God. In other words, by default, humans are not kingdom bound. In other words, original natural birth won't do. It won't do. So to sum up verse 12 then, this is death's arrival, sin and death's entry into the world through one man, and so through that one man all sinned. And as such, through Adam, through the humanity of death, look at it, sin and death reign over all. In Adam all sinned. As mentioned, Paul will give proof that this is a matter of representation and not practice by what he offers next. And let's go there. We looked at death's arrival, now death's reign. Death's reign. Let's continue in verse 13. He continues, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. For, look at that word at the beginning of 13. For, and we learn to read All the words, even the little words, for, remember, that signals a connection to what was just said. So what Paul is going to say in 13 and 14 is directly connected to 12. So we would say this, how, Paul, can you prove that in Adam all sinned? Paul anticipates this. How can you prove that this is a headship issue? Paul, are not all men sinners by practice? That's how death spreads, because we sin and it spreads. Beloved, those are good theological instincts. That's very good. And they're demonstrated, as mentioned, elsewhere in the Bible. But again, that's not what's being taught here. We have to stick to the text and what it's teaching us. This is original sin, original death. So again, how is Paul going to demonstrate that in Adam all sinned and died? Well, he takes us now, look at it, to a period of time where the instrument of revealing sin was not yet on the scene. And you know what that instrument of revealing sin is, right? The law. For the Jew, the law. It wasn't yet on the scene. He's going to take you to this period of time where that instrument wasn't yet on the scene, but the evidence of sin was reigning during this time. And what is that time? From Adam to Moses. And the point is this, look at verse 14, from Adam to Moses, death reigned. Death reigned without law, right? And death reigned even over those whose sinning was not like Adam's sin, that original sin. This is so important. In other words, there was no expressed command from God not to sin like this. We kind of have to just put our thinking caps on more tightly here. This is Paul's point. He's going to a period of time where there wasn't a revelation of sin by way of law. There was no law expressed like we read in Genesis 2. In that administration, prior to the fall, that was law revealed. The command in Genesis 2, 16, 17. And it was a clear law in that administration. It said, don't do this. That's it. That's the law. That was revealed and we have it in Scripture. But there was a law coming years later with Moses as found, and we studied in Exodus. Remember, another revealed, expressed law. So we could say then, in one sense, sin could not be counted in the same way in that time frame. 
between those law expressions, Genesis 2, Exodus 19. And that is precisely the point at the end of verse 13. Sin is not counted like that, right? A violation against a revealed law where there is no law. And we know this. Let's talk about this so we understand it. Now listen, it doesn't mean sin has no consequent or result. We know that it does. When we read from Adam to Moses, we know that. But instead, it means this. Listen, sin has no accounting or it's not counted in the same way it was with Adam. And in one sense, it can't be because of what was revealed to Adam and what was revealed to Moses. This is what makes sin, by the way, a transgression. That's what moves it from a falling short of God's standard to a transgression, which is an act of treason against a revealed word from God, an act against the revealed will of God. To help us understand this, take you to Joshua 24 for a moment. Maybe you can turn there. Turn to Joshua 23 we'll look at. And I want us to understand the difference between sin and transgression. Here Joshua, of course, is about to pass. The land has been conquered, so to speak. Not fully, but Joshua has led in the conquest. And here, as he's giving marching orders, like his predecessor did, Moses, he gives this, Yahweh, by the way of Joshua, he says this. Let's pick it up in Joshua 23, verse 16. Now listen to what he says. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, and note the language, which he commanded you, and he'll go on to show what that is, serving other gods, bow down to them, which would be a direct violation of the second commandment, reveal commandment. But look at the word he uses. If you transgress the covenant, in other words, law's been revealed to you, it would be heinous to violate that covenant law, right? Sin is one thing, and we'll come back to that. Transgression and violation would be another. And this is affirmed, by the way, go to chapter 24, and we will see this. Joshua later says to the people, now listen to the words he uses. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your two things. Your transgressions, one, your overt covenant revealed will violations, or two, your sins. Do you see that? There are transgressions which are high treason with God. This is the revealed express law that you violated. And then there are sins, and of course that doesn't mean sins are any lesser in their effect and consequence, back to Romans. But it does go to show there's something qualitatively different here. This is, beloved, then, not just a matter of representation with wickedness, but also revelation. Later, Romans 7, 7, Paul will say this, If it had not been for the law, what does he say? I would not have known sin. Adam transgressed a command. From Adam to Moses, there was sin without law. There's something about sin that is committed with no knowledge of the law and something about sin with expressed knowledge of the law. You know all manner of this, don't you? We have all manner of this that happens in our daily lives. You get pulled over on the road, a foreign road, and you say, officer, I didn't know what the speed limit was, right? Doesn't mean you didn't sin or break the law. You didn't know. You didn't have a revealed will. What about on your new job? Oh, boss, I didn't know that that was a policy of the company. It's still wrong, but you didn't know. 
And what about traveling to a new country? And you get pulled over for something there. Like, I didn't know. You see the difference between sin and transgression. We can still commit sin and face the consequences of sin, but transgressing is something different. Adam thus was on the hook, here's Paul's point, for an expressed command and he broke it. He looked in the face of the command and God and said, I will not do it. You see that? That's transgression. That sin was counted against him thus. And all those, that transgression against all those in Adam, all of us represented in that garden, that is transgression. However, the quality of that sin differed to those after. All the subsequent sins from the garden to the flood to the tower to Moses, they sinned and faced consequences of sin, including death, but qualitatively different to transgression against a revealed law. Still sin against God's law, but different. As such, and here's Paul's point then, let's bring it to a head. Here's Paul's point. Those from Adam to Moses still died because death still reigned. Do you see that? That's his point. Death reigned, even without law. They did not die because they broke revealed law. And here's the point of the four. They died because they were already bound to die because sin had already come into the world through sin, through death, because of Adam. They died because sin and its consequences, death, were already in the world. They died because they sinned in practice, yes, but more so, here it is, they sinned in Adam. They died because they inherited the guilt of Adam and faced thus sin's consequences. That's Paul's point. That is death's reign. From Adam through Adam and all that are in Adam. That's the humanity of death. And there is, of course, no hope in that humanity. None at all. You see that? Revealed law is something, and it is a thing, and we'll have more to talk about with that. But beloved, sin is in the world, and death through sin, and you cannot stop it. It's here, it's in your DNA, and you cannot stop it. And if we left it there, and if this passage ended there, of course, it would be hopeless for all of humanity. But of course, this passage, as we read off the top, will tell us of another humanity, and Paul hints at it. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Look at that word type. Type means form or mold or pattern. Adam thus, here it is, had the form, the shape, the pattern of another. Adam was a type, so a pattern and form of one that was to come. This is important. One who was like Adam... Not in his being or his actions or sin and death. This is important. But one who is like Adam in representation. One who is like Adam in his standing for a group and standing for humanity. One who is like Adam as the head of a humanity. That's it. One whose one action, like Adam, had a similar sweep and scope on his humanity group. You see that? Adam's one action affects his humanity group. And the one to come's action affects his humanity group. And who is that? Of course, it's Christ Jesus, the Lord, right? Over another humanity, the humanity of life. Christ, the Lord of life, the seed promised in the wake of death's arrival and reign. 
Back in the garden in the wake of sin and death, a new humanity right there in the aftermath of original sin, a new humanity was promised. A humanity from Adam. Here's our God, but not like Adam. A humanity not of death, but of life. A humanity like Adam in the sense that a new head was coming. Listen, back to the beginning, Genesis 3.15, after sin and death. To Satan, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you hear that? That is right in the aftermath, embedded in the curse, the promise of a new head. Next week, we turn to that offspring, the true and better Adam, and we're going to see his life and his humanity. We'll leave it there for now and pick it up next week. Bow your heads with me. Father, we are thankful that we are not subjected to one humanity, our original humanity, our default humanity. We thank you for the true and better Adam that you sent by way of your son, Jesus Christ. May we look to him, live in him, and behold him. Oh God, may we take that away from this passage this morning and look to live in light of that new humanity we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.